So Revelation chapter 1, and there are sermon notes in the bulletin if you haven't pulled those out. Today, we are starting a new study. And I'm very excited about this study. This is a jet tour of the book of Revelation. That's where the jet's up there. And I've entitled it, A Blessed Beginning to the End. Now, a jet tour has become an expression for a fast study. And let me just do a little explanation, because before we get into what we're doing in chapter one, I want to give some background material here. And so what I want to do is, first and foremost, make you understand a jet tour is biblical. A jet tour is something that it's going to be more high level. We're going to go through quickly. The Bible teaches us how to teach. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul talks about to the church at Ephesus that he was charged the whole counsel of God. And I believe that is a pastor's mandate. There is nothing wrong with topical messages. There are not wrong with systematic messages. But to get a good, healthy diet, I do believe that the best way to give the whole counsel of God is what we normally do here. Book studies, where you go word by word, verse by verse. And it does two things. Number one, it makes every topic. And, and because, I'm going to be honest, some pastors can be very manipulative. And the reality of it is, is they can make and say, I'm going to just pick and choose that I want to talk about. And before you know it, they've, they have molded and shaped the church and their vision, which is fine. But when you have an understanding of the high calling of what you're supposed to do in teaching the Word of God, it is Christ's church. It is His message. The Word of God is His Word, and I can't pick and choose. Now, again, so people are clearly understanding. Topical messages are not wrong. They are not wrong. But a healthy diet of them would be because you would end up picking and choosing. Also, there's the sense that when you have to work through a book study and you go word by word, verse by verse, you're hitting every topic. And there could be topics that, wow, that's really touchy. That's really sensitive. Or I disagree with that topic, so I'm not going to teach it. And so you would see if all of a sudden we were going through like the book of 1 Corinthians and all of a sudden I said, well, we're not going to touch that chapter because I don't think that I, I want to go into that material. Well, why? Well, I know that's an oversimplification, but the reality of it is, is that we do have a methodology here. But in the mindset, too, that, look, you know, we spent five years on 1 Corinthians, but it wasn't just five years in 1 Corinthians. We took time off for Christmas. We took time off for topical studies. And that is the normal methodology here, working word by word, verse by verse. All that to say is, like, when you come sometimes, can you do something different? Absolutely. And that's what this jet tour is. And that's a long explanation for why we're doing a jet tour. Second, I want to make sure that you understand, as we come to the book of Revelation, prophecy is really big in the Bible. Do you know that according to, um, was it J.B. Payne in the... Biblical prophecy, over one-fourth of the Bible has been dedicated to prophecy. That means when the texts were written, they were prophecies. Like if Noah was told, hey, there's a coming flood, you know, that was prophecy. And then there's passages about the coming of Jesus, and those were prophecies. And there are 
prophecies about how the world is going to end. Those are prophecies. And we believe over half of already the prophecies that are in Scripture have already been fulfilled, especially the ones with the first coming of Jesus. But there's a horde of prophecy that has yet to come to, to, to fruition. And we're going to see a good portion of that is in the book of Revelation. And so that's why I'm really excited about studying the book of Revelation so that you see how it is, is unfolding. And the third point I would have is the book of Revelation is exciting now. Why is the book of Revelation exciting now? It's because, yes, these events are future. Yes, these events are something that I think we're going to see we're not going to be a part of. Then you say, why would God have us understand? Well, there are going to be people who are going to have their Bibles when they go through this. And at the same time, to get us more urgent, to get us more um, on fire for God, I think he wants the church to always be going through and understanding prophecy so that it, it gets them with the mindset that this world is not worth living for, that this world is not worth all of your assets and living for in this world because this world is passing away and also it's lust. The book of Revelation has got a lot of events in it that when we look at them we say, well, they're going to unfold in the future, but yet what is exciting is that we are seeing things happen that show that we are really close. For example, about 30, 40 years ago, all of a sudden, we started seeing across the globe the top one world government. It was something that you might have had ancient uh, other people writing about it, but we started having political leaders start talking about one world, one world. And it has just continued to grow. 50, 60 years ago, the world began to develop weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. When you look at Revelation and you say, okay, it's going to be organized around seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. I think it's 25% of the world dies in the seal judgments. 33% die in the trumpet judgments. And then almost everybody dies in the bowl judgment. How can you see all people dying so quickly? Weapons of mass destruction. And now we've got them. And, you know, we who have grown up in this era... It's something that we've always lived with. We've always lived the fact that in reality there's an atomic bomb. Well, you've got to have to understand in the timeline of human history, weapons of that mass destruction didn't exist. And they're here today. Also, we're living in a day and age when technology is advancing, like incredibly, where the fulfillment of Revelation 13 if you're unfamiliar with it, speaks of the Antichrist, the beast, as he's called in Revelation 13, is able to control all buying and selling. And what you have in our day and age is technology where buying and selling can be controlled. And I've often said that when John wrote this book, he wrote the book of Revelation, if somebody got this book and they lived in Philippi, lived in Rome and they read the book of Revelation and they read chapter 13 and it says that this world leader is going to control all buying and selling, they had to laugh. They had to say, are you kidding me? You're going to be able to control 
people and buy and sell, it takes months for someone to get from, to get from Jerusalem to Rome. You're not going to be able to control my buying and selling. Well, now, all you have to do is travel around the globe and we're connected with these phones and we're connected with credit card machines and, and the ability to shut down countries' economies overnight with the click of a computer switch is there. It's not future people, it is there, okay? And so you read Revelation 13 and you say, wow, that's now. And then on top of it, the thing that you should all, all, all be excited about is that in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37 and 38, chapters 37 and 38, you have the prophecy that in the end times, God would regather Israel, not be saved. And in 1948, out of the horrors of World War II, Israel has come back and they are now a nation. Again, you have to understand that was a prophecy. And I have in um, a book that I've got called Forsaking Israel, okay, not Forsaking Israel, I think is what it's called. It, I have a sermon where a man preached, I believe it was in 1869 or 1879, where he talks about the fact that Israel will be regathered. And it was a, a sermon that would have been ridiculed. How dare you think that Israel is going to be regathered. These are people that have been scattered all over the entire world. They're scattered everywhere. And yet, now, we who have grown up in the 80s, the 90s, and the last 20 years, the, the odd years, Israel being a nation is like commonplace. But you have to understand, in the timeline of human history, in the timeline of human history, Israel has not been a nation since 70 A.D., and now it is. And, and the excitement is that this is playing into the fact that all of these things are lining up like dominoes put in place for the unfolding of the book of Revelation. And so, yes, I want you to understand the book of Revelation is exciting now. And that's why I'm so excited that we're studying it. Fourth point, taking these notes on the back is I think it's very important that we understand the book of Revelation can be understood. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I've got a quote from a very conservative pastor and in his commentary. He basically says that when you come to the book of Revelation, it's filled with multi-views and it's the most challenging book and there's all these different views and he goes through the main categories and the main categories of like, you know, the, the, it's called the preterist view, I know it's a technical name, but that's the official position of the Catholic Church, that the book of Revelation has already occurred. Preterist, it means historical. There's other people that believe that this is all symbolic. There's other people that believe that this is, it all has double meaning. And then there are people like us that mean that you can just understand it. And, and why do these people take different views? Some of them, I got to say, are just unbelievers. They're just unbelievers and they don't have the spirit of God. And so they're just basically going to be making things up. Second, there are some people that are really confused and they don't understand normal reading principles and biblical reading principles. You see, it says in verse 1, it says the revelation. It's apocalyptic. Apocalypto, I think is apocalypt. 
Lipsis is the, is the noun there. And they literally come to the book of Revelation and say this is apocalyptic literature. And that when you come to books that are prophecy, you have to all of a sudden use different words. And the reality of it is there is no justification for that. Now, hermeneutics is a big word for reading principles. And I just wanted to take a little step back here and, and <clears throat> just tell you something that you all need to know. The Bible teaches the right reading principles which we are to use to interpret it. What do you mean by that? Well, reading principles, hermeneutics, and this, how words mean things. Sometimes there's literal, sometimes there's things symbolic. Real places and things are rooted in, in history. How do we know that? When we study the Bible, and this isn't going to go into great detail, but other than the fact to say is that we see the Bible used within the Bible. You see, like, when God tells Noah basically to build an ark. He, Noah doesn't say, you know, I think he's just symbolically talking about salvation there, and he's not really talking about a physical boat. No, he builds a physical boat, physical flood comes. When we, see, when we see God give information to Abraham, get out of your land and go to this other place. He doesn't just say, you know, he's just talking about how I need to spiritually grow in advance. No, Abraham literally goes from the land of Ur to what we understand, the land of Israel. And, and when God has specific prophecies like, oh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to capture Israel. Those literally happen. They happen in literal places. Now, does that mean that you can't have figures of speech when Jesus says he's a door? We don't believe he's a, a wooden plank. And when Jesus talks about Noah and other people from the Old Testament, he treats them as literal people, doesn't teach, treat them as just symbolic. So my point is, is that we have the Bible teaching us how to interpret it. And the grammatical historical is the official title of those reading principles. You just have to understand, you're to use normal reading principles. And, and, and when you have that, then you begin to understand that when you come to the book of Revelation, all of a sudden you don't need to put on different colored glasses to make your interpretation. It's going to be just normal. Like, we're studying the book of Daniel. My plug always for Tuesday night. We're studying the book of, of Daniel. Men, I encourage you to come on Tuesday nights. And as Carl moves through Daniel, it's very easy for us to understand. It's not like you can't grasp even what the dreams mean, what the prophecies mean. There are times when we come to places where we say, hey, we struggle over defining something. We just recently went to a text in Daniel chapter 9 where it talks about the most holy. And it could be Jesus being the most holy or it could be the most holy place being the temple. And there are people who are divided. But it doesn't mean that the most holy is something that all of a sudden is so that you can't define it. So my point in telling you all of this is when you hear people throw their arms up and say the book of Revelation can't be understood. The book of Revelation is something that is so out there that, you know, it's going to leave you in a quandary. I don't think that's accurate. I think you're going to see the book of Revelation can be understood. All right? So those are my background material. 
when we come, though, to, to chapter 1, and we begin basically our background, I want you to see that the, the author is the gospel writer, John, okay? And when John writes this, it is believed to be 95 A.D., 95 A.D. How do we know that? We know that because of writings from the first century. We know that there is a Roman emperor, and I want to say his name right, Domitian, who has exiled John to this island. This island, it's called Patmos, was a penal colony. I thought about different maps I could give you um, to show you it. And when I see these maps, there's a whole series of little islands that are off of what would be, this would be modern Turkey. These are the seven churches that are going to be listed. But there's all these little islands that are out here. It's believed that John was like the pastor of Ephesus. And when he got, they attempted to kill him, they couldn't kill him because God sovereignly kept stepping in, that they finally said, okay, we're going to put you on this penal colony. And we know that John was there, and there's writings that after Domitian got um, out of office, that John was allowed to come back to Ephesus and die. All right? Out of all the apostles, he was the one who got to die, we believe, of natural causes. Um, what day did John write this? What day did John write Revelation? I believe it was a Sunday. How do we know that? Look at verse 10. He was on, in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the voice of a trumpet. The Lord's day, it's believed this is the first expression of this, that this is Sunday. Now, God never prescribes the fact that we always have services on Sunday. There are some that will do Saturdays and some that will do other days of the week to have services, which are perfectly fine. But we see the normal pattern of the New Testament church was to meet on what we perceived the first day of the week for the Jews, which was Sunday, and it was being called the Lord's Day. I believe the first time that this expression gets used in Scripture, maybe I think it is the only time it gets used in Scripture from that perspective. And so John is writing this on a Sunday, or at least the majority of it, okay? So with that, with that in mind, let's go and let's just, let's just do a jet tour, and let's just understand some key facts that I'm pulling out of chapter 1 so that when you leave today, you say, well, I just feel like I know chapter 1, the key things that chapter 1 is all about. So take out your sermon notes, and the first one is to understand the book's title of Revelation tells you Look at verse 1, and it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So in verse 1, we not only get the title for this book, but we learn who is communicating it. Yes, Jesus is going to be revealed to the world as he comes again, but this first verse emphasizes it is he who tells us what is going to happen. Now, did you catch that? Now, if I can make this a little more technical, real, there is, when, when you say it's the revelation of Jesus, you have either that this is subjective genitive or objective genitive. Let me, that, that's the technical. 
Anyone that wants to go into that deeper, you can go on it. But basically, is this title, and this is the only book of the Bible that has a title. It's believed. You don't go, like, to the book of John. It says the book of John. You don't go to the book of Ephesus. You know, to the book of Ephesus. You'll say to the church at Ephesus, you know, for example. But this one is considered the one that it has the title. The Revelation of Jesus. Now, when I talk about specifics here, and this is why we have to have good hermeneutics, and we want to be specific, and we don't want to just impose our thought and our theology on what we want a verse to say. Revelation, meaning, is this all about how Jesus is coming to earth? Or is it Jesus is the author who's telling us? Now, obviously, this book does have I mean, the earth. So that can make it a little confusing. But the overwhelming technical, all the pointers in this, is that this very first line is about Jesus telling us with what is going to happen. So look at verse 1. It's the revelation which God gave him, he gave Jesus, to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it to his, to his angel who gave it to John. So Jesus is using an angel, but he is the one to unfold the book of Revelation. He is the one that's unveiling it. The word uh, apocalypsis means to unveil. It's used sometimes when there are secrets, they're unveiled. You, if you would do a word study, and if we were going to go more technical, we can maybe look at some of those verses. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you the word means to unveil. And the one that's doing the unveiling is Jesus. And the line there, the things which must soon take place, is also an expression that you can do a study on. It's a study that's rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in the book of Daniel, but it's also used in the, in the Gospels. Jesus uses it um, in Matthew 24 as one place. It, things which must soon take place. Now, with all of that said, what I wanted to point out to you is that when you come to the book of Revelation, there are 404 verses in it. Over 278 of the verses have a reference to the Old Testament. Although not one of them will be quoted directly. For those of you who regularly attend our church the other day, it was yesterday, I sent out a link that has over what is believed to be the 500 Old Testament passages. So if you're visiting today and you'd like to, I'll send it to you. Because I just want to give you the information. I'm trying to do a jet tour. I'm not trying to, to overwhelm you. But like this, this one little line here, uh, this one little line here is used in numerous places in the Old Testament. And it's used again in the New Testament. But it's, it's, it is very symbolic of the fact that when you start to study the book of Revelation... You had better know the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, because Daniel is referenced more than any other book, than, than any other Old Testament book. And so you can understand why the book of Daniel is so under attack. The book of Daniel is thought to be written in the year 200 BC, which would make it after the fact, because one of the things that Daniel does lay out so much incredible prophecy that that if that if 
Daniel really was written around 600 to 550 BC, it would mean that there was a God behind the book of Daniel, which obviously we believe. And so my point is, is that when you come to the book of Revelation, you might want to, if you're doing your own personal studies, because I'm not going to take every verse, the PDF that I sent out, if you saw it, chapter one, it's overwhelming. So many of these verses are tied to Old Testament passages, and it's just overwhelming. And if the Old Testament is just all figurative, well, then you can be frustrated. It's not. The Old Testament can be understood, and it's literal, too. So, you understand, we're coming to the book of Revelation, and ultimately, what this book is about is Jesus telling us what is going to happen. Meaning, it's dealing with future stuff. It's, we're going to see. It's dealing with future stuff. And that's what gets exciting because we're starting to see some of the future stuff happen. Second, when we study this book, it's designed to be a blessing. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in them, for the time is near. Now, I tell you, when I read the Gospels, one of the most favorite books that I like to read is in the Gospel of Matthew. And I like to read the passages of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and seek after God. And I think there are seven of them. Do you realize there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation? This is the very first one. Look at it. Okay? This book is designed to be very practical. It's designed to bring blessing. The word blessing means to be in a good place, to be in a positive situation. Doesn't mean you can't be in a trial. Doesn't mean you can be through a difficulty because the people in the book of Revelation are going to go through a lot of difficulties and God's going to continually tell them that they are blessed. Now, I can quickly cite off that the blessings, the other six, okay, you ready for this? You're taking notes. The other in chapter 14, chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 20, and then there are 2 and 22. So I'll repeat it again. 14, 16, 19, 20, and 22 twice. My point in that is that you go in, you look at it, and you understand that this is a book that is trying to get you to understand that when you read it and it impacts you, you can be put in a positive place. You're going to be blessed by heeding it. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he reads it. Now, if the book of Revelation couldn't be understood and you couldn't read it and have a definitive understanding, then this verse alone doesn't make sense. Reads it and those who hear the words of the prophet. Jesus hears because at, the, at this time, the normal practice was for the New Testament church to be reading the Bible. People didn't have their own. And so it would be the normal practice to be reading it. He says, those who read the words of the prophecy, prophecy something in the future, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And we aren't going to get into the idea of what verse 1 already talked about, things happening quickly, the time is near. Other than just to say, from God's perspective, when God says a day and a thousand years are the same to him, in the timeline of human history, what is happening is going to be a blink. And, and it's going to happen quickly. For those who believe that the book of Revelation has already occurred, it doesn't make any sense. Because the people who believe that the book of Revelation has already occurred take that verse and they take the first verse and say, well, this was clearly going to happen in the first century. 
But the reality of it is, is that when you look at the events where 25% of the world dies, 33% of the world dies, and almost the entire world dies, that's never happened in human history. Never happened to that extent. And then actually have Jesus return. Because they also believe that Jesus did return in a more spiritual reality. So my point in just telling you is, is that, look, this book is designed to be understood as to bring blessing. So I'm encouraging you, try to read it. Read it on your own. And I think you'll see that it is very understandable. And I'm hoping as we're going to come back to this idea of heeding it. Heeding it means have it impact you, that you will be impacted by it. Third, this book is written by John to seven literal churches. Now, you already saw those on the map, but I want you to continually remember that this book is written to to really impact them. The seven literal churches are referenced either directly or indirectly in those four verses. Okay? And so look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 that says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, which I said today is modern Turkey. So when you hear of Turkey, the country of Turkey, you can think of that. And he says, grace to you and peace from him who was and who, who, who is and who was and who was to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne. Verse 11. Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Those are the names of the seven churches. Historical places, historical ruins. And we'll talk about it next week as we go into chapters 2 and 3, but these are real places, real people. And then verse 20 says this. It says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. My point in pointing this one out is that, yes, there is symbolism in the book of Revelation, but there are always pointers to tell, tell you that we are talking um, about something specific. So you've got these seven lampstands, and just so that nobody can see Everybody argues, look, what do I think these are symbolic of? You get a verse like this as seven churches. And so, obviously, too, then, this helps me to understand why I need to sometimes know the Old Testament. Because so many of these verses will reference things that I'll be able to say, people think this is symbolic, but the Old Testament is telling me what the literal meaning is. Now, John is the writer. And like I said, he, it's believed that he writes this in 95 AD. It's the last book that's written. Again, church history has it. The records regarding Domitian confirmed that he was put into this penal colony. And three times in the first nine verses, did you catch it already? John affirms that he wrote this. Look at, look at verse 1. Okay? At the very last line, he communicated it by his angel to his bondservant. John, then in verse 4, John to the seven churches, as he begins verse 4, and then verse 9, I, John. John was the beloved disciple. It is explicit. This is not something that's made up. One of the things that, again, as I had to deal with, and I'm not going to go into this in detail, other than the fact that people will say, well, the book of Revelation was written 200 years after, after the disciples were long off the earth. Well, if somebody is writing God's word, then they're out and out lying because three times they've identified themselves as John. All right? So it was written by John to seven literal churches. 
people that it could impact them. All right, fourth point. Fourth point, this one is important. Jesus is pictured as an picture. Now, all of us, as much as we don't want to make idols, much as we don't want to have um, anything idolatry, um, we realize we watch movies, we watch TV shows, we watch books, we have paintings, and you'll see pictures of Jesus. And I'm not advocating anyone do this, but if you were to go out tonight and you were to go trick-or-treating and you were going to dress up as Jesus, most people would look at Jesus being somebody that's 30 years old and wearing a robe. When you die and you go to face Jesus, he is not a 30-year-old. He is a terrifying, imposing figure. I'm going to read to you verses 10 to 18. This is the Jesus you are going to meet. He says, well, I'll pick up in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island of called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The voice is going to be identified. I just want you to see the pointers. It clearly can be no other one than Jesus. And you should be able to figure this out. Verse 11. So write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sack. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Now listen to me. There's only one person dead. There's only one person that this could be descriptive of. It's Jesus. And I just think it's important for us to remind ourselves who he looks like. Why did he give us that imagery? Does he want to understand him in this light? Absolutely, I think. Does he want us to grasp that he's in control? Absolutely. You have to understand that the events that are going to happen in the book of Revelation are his control. They are not happenstance. They are not things that are out of his control. It is he, when we come to chapter 4 and 5, are the ones that, he is the one that opens up the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. It is he that is in control. Most importantly, for everyone that's in this room, you have to look and you have to see the line where he says, I am the living one, and I was dead, 
and behold, I live forevermore, i.e. eternal life, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I decide when people die. I decide who, you know, goes into heaven. We the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that you're a sinner. The wages of sin is death. The only way to overcome the penalty that you owe is through belief in Jesus Christ. He died on that cross. He rose again. But by faith alone, you must accept it. Faith is not just a mere agreement. It must be something that causes you to be born again. Jesus himself said, unless a man is born again, he doesn't go into the kingdom of God. Jesus will be described in John's first, um, the book of 1 John, where he talks about he is the ultimate attorney. He is the one who's the propitiation. He's the one that basically lets you in or out of heaven. It isn't a guy named Peter. It is Jesus. And Jesus is something that's very, that is someone that has so much, so much going for him that's described in these verses. And if I were to take, if I were to take another month or two, I could go into such in-depth understanding of Jesus that you would just be able to build what is called a Christology. Christology ology is, a, is a study of something, the study of Christ. And some of the subject matter that in these verses is how he has messianic authority over the churches, how he has the high rank of high priest, how he has a likeness like God the Father, which is interesting. Isn't that interesting how he has a likeness like what many perceive to be God the Father? He has omniscience and judgment. He has purity and judgment. He has authority over the church. He has great control of the church. He has deadly power and he has great glory. Isn't that amazing? It's all there. It's all in those ver verses. So that's just the big picture. But then also, this book has a clear outline. This book has a clear outline. If I'm studying chapter one, the one thing I don't want to miss is verse 19, where as he's getting these instructions, he says, therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And so because of that, it's basically this outline. What do you see? What do you see? So he, he describes, this is what happened to me on that Lord's Day. This is what I got to see. This is when he started it. Then he is told what is, what happens in chapters 2 and 3, which we're going to hit next week. And then when you come to chapter 4, he has said, come up to heaven and I'm going to show you what will be. And that's why the majority of this book is about prophecy. I'm going to tell you the things that take place. What did he say in verse 1? I'm going to tell you about the things that take place. What did he say in Matthew 24? I'm going to tell you about things that take place. What was said in the book of Daniel? I'm going to tell you about things that take place. The book has a clear outline. And I'm going to tell you right now, I believe it's chronological. It's just like we'll go one thing right after another. And I think it's just it's a very easy book to understand. And, and he is going to get us the understanding of what's going to take place. So, there you go. Get toward it. Hope you feel like, wow, I feel like I know what chapter one is all about. It gives me the, it gives me the title. It's a book where Jesus is telling us what's going to happen. Jesus is the author, the one who's promoting it, who, through the angel, through John, is giving us the information. Second, it's designed to be a blessing. 
so that it can impact you, so you can understand it. Third, it is a book that is to literal people rooted in time and history by a real author. It is a book that gives us insight into the imposing reality. I didn't want to put fearful. I didn't want to put terrifying. I, I, look, I, I get it. Some people don't like certain terms, so I just put imposing. Jesus is an imposing figure that is described. And then fifth, it is a book that can be clearly outlined and understood. You can understand this book using normal hermeneutics. What we're going to see, though, is that this book foretells an incredible judgment upon the earth. If you use normal reading skills, even people who have a mid-trib or a post-trib view think that the church is going to go through the tribulation. And one of the things I didn't talk about earlier is when I was talking about the hermeneutics is I'm not going to go into the rapture so much. We believe here there's a pre-trib rapture. But for those who understand and, and study this, when you realize that people who hold mid-trib and post-trib views, meaning that they believe the rapture occurs in the middle, or they believe the rapture when the church is seized off the earth in the end, and we've done an incredible in-depth study. If you want to know more, go into the detail. The podcasts are out there. But what all of you need to understand, our church body needs to understand so they feel comfortable, is that the, the people that are and I've got books in my office where the people who write on mid-trip say, listen, if I use the normal reading principles, I come to a pre-trib, pre-millennial view. But basically, they just say, well, I'm not going to use it because, again, I believe this is apocalyptic literature and I'm going to use my own reading material. Normal reading principles, you have to decide I'm not going to use normal reading principles to come up with a different view. That's it. And, and, again, not my words, the authors of the different views. And so those who study understand that it is a simple, you use the normal reading principles, you're coming with a pre-trib, pre, pre-rapture view of, um, of, of the pre-trib view of the rapture, of when this occurs. And so we're going to watch it, we're going to play out, and we're going to believe it's chronological, that this is something that you can understand. I believe the church is given this, though. You say, well, wait, if the church isn't going to go through this, shouldn't the church, um, if, the, if I thought the church was going to go through this, shouldn't the church be preparing and, and getting, you know, hiding and digging tunnels and getting supplies? You don't get that as you move through chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. You just get an unfolding of what's going to happen. But I think the church is supposed to read this and understand it and then realize when Jesus said, don't store up your treasure in heaven, that's how we're to prepare. As he talks about serving, that's how we're to serve. We're told, and again, without going into the detail, that we're not going to go through wrath. That's very explicit in 1 Thessalonians 5. But what do we do? Well, let me just leave you with these things, application. Adjust your life to this future. The world is passing away, and also it's lust. The world is moving towards destruction. Uh, this world... You can try to store up treasure. You can try to accumulate a lot of wealth. Number one, you're not going to be able to take it with you. Number two, it's not going to last. As much as you go back to the pharaohs and, and the people that from, from the very beginning were trying to accumulate all their wealth so that when they died, they can keep it with you. You can't keep anything. And you need to honestly challenge yourself. Am I looking at the book of Revelation and looking at this as just some academic study of end times? No, I don't want it to be that. I do think... 
do think that we need to adjust our life to this future. And obviously, God has waited 2,000 years, and he might wait another 2,000 years, which I don't think so because of what I talked about earlier about all the things that are happening, the excitement that we're seeing. But the reality of it is, is yes, people in the first century, second century, third century were given this so that they too could adjust their lives. And so heed these things. Make them impact your life. Third, second, I meant, know Jesus or else. Through belief, through a growing Christian faith. If Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades, then you need to understand his gospel and you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to make sure that you're born again. I beg you to make sure you know you're born again. And I pray that if you are born again, that you're growing in Christ. The challenge for this book, especially when we go into chapters 2 and 3, are the evaluation of churches. And I tell you, the only evaluations that matter, people can come up with their own evaluation of a church. But the only things that matter, we're going to see, is what Jesus says in chapters 2 and 3. And, and, and Jesus is the one you have to know. And, and be growing in Christ and knowing more about him. And this is his revelation. This is what he wants the church to know. And again, so it's tangible. Not so it's like something like, oh, we all have to debate upon this. The reality of it is, is you're going to see trumpet judgments, bold ju- there, there are sealed judgments, bold ju- trumpet judgments, bold judgments. They're understandable. And then... Lastly, we need to realize Jesus is in charge of the church. We need to submit to his word. We need to be studying his word on a regular basis. And that's where I hope all of you are. This is a great book, the book of Revelation, because it obviously ties us into eternity. The thing that's so funny is when you study it, there are a lot of things that uh, aren't told to us. Like exactly what's everything going to happen after we start, you know, what's what next phase of God's plan for the universe. There's a lot of things that we wish that we were told, but the things that he wants us to know, he's told us. So please, please let this book heed you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the unveiling of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for what you wanted us to see in this history. And I pray, God, that this is a book that is a great blessing for all of us to study and understand. And I'm praying that as your spirit works upon people, the people that are maybe as not faithful as they should be will start to think, I need to be more faithful. I need to be serving more, doing more. I need to be growing more in my knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I believe that this book is going to happen. And I believe that I need to be prepared, which would be the reality, God, I pray for everyone that's an unbeliever, that they are going to face Jesus come judgment. And the Jesus that they face will be the Jesus said holds those keys. It's the Jesus that the Apostle Paul described in Philippians 2 that every knee will one day bow. You may say, I'm not going to bow. You will bow to the one who's so imposing. And I pray that if you're willing today and you've never given your life to Jesus, that today would be the day in which you recognize the loving, the kind, the benevolent Jesus it says, saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Rest. Rest from your trials and your difficulties to try to make yourself right with trials and difficulties of trying to better yourself. But you will find rest in Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray.